When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Hello, darlings, and welcome to this episode of Creatures of the Night. I am here with my cohort and consort, the devil's daughter herself, Dracomorta, of course. <laughs> devil's daughter? I like to think of myself as the devil's mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's more appropriate because I was going to say the devil's daughter does have a sister, of course, me. And I do look young and youthful, so you can take the mother role. I'll take the daughter role. Mm. Maybe the devil's oldest daughter. <laughs> Distinguished Anne. Okay, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, to catch everybody up and in preparation for the next season of the Boulay Brothers Dragula, season four, which we are toiling away in the shadows of creating. We've also been very busy in the wee hours of the night, kind of binge watching some of our favorite horror films and soaking up all of the deadly delight. And we've been watching a lot of horror. Quite a lot. Oh, my God. It uh, started with us realizing, to everyone's surprise probably, that we have never watched The Purge or any of The Purge movies at all. We quickly recalled that we were at Horror Nights here in Universal Studios, Universal City, California. We were on a tram and they like pushed us out and it was like, The Purge. And I was like, this is kind of amazing. And Horror Nights really brought their A-game when they did that maze. So when we saw The Purge, it kind of brought us back to that moment. So we watched The Purge and then we watched... The second one, the third one, and the fourth <laughs> one. I think we watched them all. <laughs> yes. And I was disappointed that the story did not continue through. I love when horror movies have like reoccurring characters and this sure. one did not. And our friends, she will go unnamed, but she said oh, the home invasion one, the first one is crap. But oh God, number two is so great. And I think Drac and I agreed. Number one was probably the best one. I agree. I think number one was the best. And I think back to that night at Halloween Horror Nights, the maze that we went on, which was great. They put you on a bus. They drove you up into the woods. And then you got out and you were in like a neighborhood. And then all of a sudden these like white suburban ladies start chasing you with bats. And I was like, okay, I'll get into it. But like, why is this scary? You yeah. know, like I didn't get the maze at exactly. the time because I'd never seen it. So now I understand why they were running out. Exactly. I think some of the scariest people alive are white suburban neighbors. Yes. Like it's like the last place <laughs> well, the I want to be. the most annoying for yeah. sure. But all, all of the above. That kind of led us to this binging fast because we said, okay, you know, let's go back and watch 
Friday the 13th because I kind of barely remember Friday the 13th. I remember it giving me one of the greatest screams of my young life because it wasn't my scream. It was my little brother's scream. She screamed her face off when, when Jason jumped out of the lake. <laughs> Which I love that scene. <laughs> me too. So we went back and watched Friday the 13th. Which was a fun refresher. Absolutely. And I think of Pinche because Pinche did a damned good. What's her name? Pamela Voorhees at Queen Kong. I think it was. And I just went back and looked at those photos and I'm like, this is so good. So I had to DM Pinche. And I'm like, you are the only Pamela Voorhees I will ever need. (laughs) All I think of now is her. When I watch Friday the 13th, I just keep seeing Pinche's face sort of manifest in an 80s way. Oh my God, totally. (laughs) So then we quickly were like, well, while we're on the roll of Friday the 13th, let's watch the second one. And oh, what a fabulous example of a super hot 80s cast, like the guys and the girls, so slutty, so nubile and ready for it. And yes, they all had to die. I mean, it really was so satisfying in so many ways. Not too much like the first one, but it did have that through line that you said you like, Jack, where sort of the legend of the campground kind of persisted mm-hmm. for sure. Right. And that, yeah. that remained pretty consistent. And then, of course, we had to watch Friday the 13th 3, where we saw the mask finally for the first time, because up until then, poor Jason was just showing her like Mr. Potato Head. And, you know, then it was the pillowcase. And then finally, right. finally... <laughs> Than the mask. Right. Which was so satisfying. Okay, there's one thing that I do think was consistent, which I appreciated. He wore the hockey mask for the first time in Friday the 13th. Yeah. Three, scream queen of that movie, hit him in the head with the axe. And yeah. it, it left like a mark over his forehead, which consistently, there's the only thing I can think of that was consistent in all these movies is that mark remains on the mask in every subsequent film. Truly. Which is and, interesting. And it didn't matter that he was like a little kid in the first one and, and then he became a supernatural force. And <laughs> a year then he, later. He's going to hell. He's ping-ponging in outer space. He's, I mean, he's battling the dreamscape. The, they're like, well, we have to get the mask consistency right. Just funny shit. It's, yeah, <laughs> he goes from being like a little kid to being like gigantic, like a yeah. monster-like steroid wrestler. And you're like, okay, You, you just accept it. It's the yeah. growth of the show. But we did end up watching Friday the 13th part two, part three, part four, and part six. I can't remember why we- skipped part five because everyone said it was awful, and I've never seen it to this day. I forget the character's name. There's like another character that comes into the series that was- they were setting up oh, to take over. Remember he at the end of yeah, part four, the little kid, like Corey Feldman's, Corey Feldman's character, character. Yeah. Tommy or something. He becomes, yeah. uh, in the next film, apparently he's like in a mental asylum and they were setting him up to become the next Jason and people hated that. Yeah. So then the part six, Jason comes back from the dead. They and were from like, that point forward, he was like a supernatural force. So thank you to refresh my memory and everyone else listening to that might not know it so well. But they were all the way in on Corey Feldman being the new Jason. Everybody hated it. So they said, dude, dude, <laughs> and just backed it up and kind of rewrite. We know that they love their Jason Voorhees. So they made it right. And that's why we skipped five and went right to six. You know, uh, something interesting about Betsy Palmer, who played Pamela Voorhees. Once again, we've talked about this about other movies. You don't think of her as the villain. You think of Jason as the killer, mm-hmm. but she is the killer. She is the it, boss. Just like in Hellraiser, you know, it's Julia. Like Julia is the killer. And, Women in horror don't get enough credit. They really, they really don't, don't get enough. Someone needs to do something about that. She is the reason that Jason exists. That's but right. Never gets credit for it. She, for all intents and purposes, she is the Jason right. for Friday the Thirteenth. Right. But we did not end it there because we went on and watched Night of the Living Dead. Yes, which is one of my favorite movies. So and good. I've watched uh, 
all the sequels over the years, but it's been a long time and I forgot a lot of them. Yeah. So we went back and in, in, in similar fashion, <laughs> we're creatures of habit and watched the first one, the second one, the third one, and on and on and on. Could barely handle most of the content. I'm yeah, like, I'll say, in my opinion, and I know people love these movies. Sure do. I think they get subsequently worse and worse and, and worse. worse. Yeah. You know, sometimes it can be rough when you're first up at bat and you hit the home run. Cause then that's what people expect consistently mm-hmm. through your career. And Miss Romero did not do that over and over in my opinion. This third one. Cause we couldn't, you can't find this. Is it the second one or the third? I one think it's the second one that you, yeah, you can't find. Can't find it anywhere now. There's like a rights legal thing where yeah. it's not on any streamers, but you can see the third one, the fourth one, and on and on. And I think a remake of the second one that happened in like the early 2000s or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. Which is supposed to be really good. And we did not watch that one yet, but we will. To go back to the original Night of the Living Dead, I think this is a great example of limitations causing you to be more creative and tell a story that you wish you had more of a budget for or you wish you had more means to portray. I feel like the limitations is what made the storytelling of Night of the Living Dead so brilliant. Yeah. But we weren't done there. No, we were not. We we decided to fast forward into kind of modern times. And and at Ian's coaxing, he was like, you guys haven't seen The Descent? And I was like, no, I haven't even seen The Descent. I tried to watch it on a plane once, but it was like so high tension and crazy. I'm like, let me turn this off. No, we started it and really got into The Descent and discovered how amazing The Descent I am in love with The Descent. Yes. And, you know, for the first time, as frequent listeners of the podcast know, I don't typically get put off or scared by movies. But when, uh, I forget which character it was, was like crawling in that really tight, I was like, Oh, I'm terrified. Jack was I was scared. like, I am scared Jack as hell. Jack was scared. I I'm was... not into that at all. The idea, and I was like, are you kidding me? Like, oh. she's like, oh, we can't find the way out. Let's jump in this little hole. I was like, are you crazy? She was squirming like a worm on her belly and the tension was just rising in the room. I'm like, oh my God, I hate this. Cause that's kind of like one of my Achilles heels, like not being able to move your limbs in those confined spaces. Mm-hmm, and I, yeah. we were like screaming for that part. Yeah, and then I the whole not. ceiling and then shifted. It, when the girl was like, you're going to be, a, I loved it. It was like dark humor. <laughs> She's like, you're going to be okay. Come on, give me your hand. We're okay. And then. It, it collapsed <laughs> yes. onto her and she you could see it on her face. She was like, yeah, you ain't OK. Not at all. You're not OK at all. <laughs> I mean, it's a really great monster movie. It's like pins and needles <laughs> the whole time. Tons of tension, jump scares and very gratuitous like monster makeup, practical effects, tons of blood, lots of gore. Like it was really, really fun. Mm-hmm. It reminded me in uh, certain ways of Annihilation, which was one of my favorite movies that came out last year or the year before, mostly because it was amazing. If you haven't seen Annihilation, you should check it out. But it's an all-female cast and the same as The Descent, which is cool because I love seeing these women carry the story where gender doesn't even really become that much of an issue at all. And it's about storytelling and these like adventurous females and and, like their primal bloodthirsty nature that comes out because they they themselves are killers too at the story quickly shows. It's interesting because, you know, the listeners of the podcast really are across the spectrum. We have a lot of people who are just new to horror movies and there's people who are, you know, have seen every horror movie alive. And they're like, of course we know about these movies, but there are, our, our listeners are so broad. I feel like yeah. some of them are introduced to some of these movies for the first time. So it's fun to bring it to them. I think. Sure. So if you're out there and you're listening, check out the descent. If you haven't seen it yet, it's one of the good things that Ian actually has recommended <laughs> and, it, and it turned out that she was right. And on that note, I think it's time to bring in our Sith apprentice. She's the Emily to our Amanda Priestley. The Willow to our Buffy. 
the skipper to our Barbie, and the shadow weaver to our Hordak, Ms. Ian DeVogler. Welcome, Ian. Ooh, I like to think that I'm the devil's boy. Not his biological <laughs> son, but his boy. <laughs> Can't you guys just take my lead? I am I write the script and you come in here and rewrite it for yourself. But you know what? I'll take it. Devil's boy is cute as hell. I think uh, <laughs> the devil already has a boy. Lil Nas X is clearly <laughs> already taking that role. If you can lap dance better than Lil Nas X, then maybe you can take her place. Listen, I am definitely not saying I can lap dance better, but I was sitting in the back going like, ooh, yes, get on daddy's dick, work. How much did we love that moment in queer oh, TV? so good. Yeah. How are you? I'm feeling pretty great. Drac? I am great. I really wanted to be able to bring you in to speak about The Descent because I'm sure you were like chomping at the bit. Oh, God. I'm so happy you guys liked it. Yeah, it was awesome. My favorite character died, though. Which one? The Asian girl that ended up at the end mm-hmm. that was cheating with the girl's Juno. husband. Yeah. Yeah. She was so cool. She was like not afraid of those things at all. They popped out and she's like stabs them in the head. And totally. I was kind of like, what did you guys think about? Now we're going to review The Descent. <laughs> well, let's get into it just for a minute. Yeah. So, did what do you think about the the other and I don't remember the character's names, but the other woman kill like killing her at the end? Like, what mm-hmm. did you think of that? I'm trying to remember exactly how that happens, but refresh my memory. I'll break it down for you. It turns out that Juno, the girl that mm-hmm. Drac is talking about. And these are just like full spoilers, so hit mute if you don't want to hear this. But it's established in a subtle way at the very beginning of the film that she oh. had an affair with her friend. And I think her name is Sarah's husband. Mm-hmm. And it's right before that untimely accident. And there's tragedy. And then they come back together and do this adventure kind of like old times. And at the end of the film, she takes her pickaxe and slams it into her shin oh, and right. basically immobilizes her. And then all of the creatures, the crawlers, like. Mm-hmm. They get her. <laughs> Effectively killing her ass. I mean, on one hand, I'm like, damn, that is fucking so cold, like, to just kill your friend like that. But also, I don't know, man. Isn't Juno also the one who led them into that cave? Mm-hmm. And who was like... That's true. I mean, at that point, I'd be like, okay, you fucked my husband. You basically caused all of my friends to die. Like, you're going down. Well, Truly. remember, she asked... <laughs> Which is one of my favorite <laughs> parts. Juno's like in the cave scared and she had just killed one of the... Uh, oh, the, yeah. What the do crawlers. you call Moloids, whatever you want to call them. Moloids. And so remember the other friend taps her on the shoulder and she turns around and chops <gasps> yes. her in the neck. But I'm like, she didn't know. I don't, I don't think she should be blamed for that. I, well, I think she was because remember at the end, the one friend had the necklace, the charm of mm-hmm. the one that she killed. So I felt like they were trying to say... She saw that and said, oh, you know, I killed her. I'm like, it was an accident. But that's kind of the thing about that movie, though, right? Is it's like at that point, accident or not, everyone is kind of just stuck in this cave and just trying to survive and get out. So whether she meant to or she didn't, she still killed her. They were like in animal mode. I feel like in those moments, this movie showed us what it means to tap into like the most primitive little lizard parts of our brains and go (laughs) into like survival and kill mode, like Mm -hmm. kill or be killed, which was really an awesome tone for this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of my favorite themes of the movie is it starts out so, I think, simple, you know, like it's five friends, they're going spelunking, and then it just very quickly descends into just kind of madness. And by the time you get to that final scene where it's the pit of just like blood and grizzle, you're just like, oh my God, how did we get here? And sure. how did we get out? There was an interesting thing that happened when Drac and I was watching it. It was massive tension, like high tension in our house. And we hadn't seen any creatures yet. Mm-hmm. And it was just what could be down here, the experience of what it means to be a spelunker in the deep parts of the world that haven't really been explored. Mm-hmm. So the flares and then the whole room lights up and like, these holes and like one of them runs and she just falls down a shaft and like (gasps) smacks her skull. And you're like, this is so dangerous and crazy and high tension. But we were more, 
I think, fearful then when the monster hadn't been revealed or explored. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you see the creature, it takes the power away. It sure did. Mm-hmm. It deflated it a little bit. I would have been much more scared to just watch them try to get out of that cave than if there had been no monsters at all. That's yeah. so interesting to me because I remember uh, actually one of the first issues of Fangoria that I ever read did a big feature on The Descent. And one of the things in there was they talked to the special effects makeup artist who designed the creature. And it was like front and center. That I mean, Literally, that was the centerfold was the creature. And I remember thinking, wow, it looks so good. I love the design of those. And I agree. You know, the more you look at them, you're kind of like, oh, you people you you cave people that's fine <laughs> but i don't know i kind of i find that to be it's a movie that's multifaceted you know it's the horror of claustrophobia it's the horror of the dark of the unknown of the monsters and it's just to me it kind of is a slam dunk in terms of terror because it's like oh my god what are you afraid of let's put it front and center yeah you know they were crawling through those holes and they were barely like getting through which is already, as we all feel, oh, is terrifying. So scary. <laughs> but they didn't have someone grabbing your feet behind. Because that would have been so much. If you were stuck yeah. in that and something was like cutting at your legs mm-hmm. or messing with your feet, you couldn't do anything. Yeah. I mean, how terrifying would that <laughs> be? If they like pulled her through, but her left leg was missing. Like, yeah, yeah. like yeah. they were eating her as yeah. she was trying to pull God, what that. a nightmare. Like, oh, my God. Oh, but maybe when we do the remake of it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's nice to kind of revel in something that we all share. But we shared more than that in the last week because the three of us had a very unusual adventure this week. And I kind of want to share that with the listeners. So running in downtown L.A. until June is something called the Stranger Things Drive-In Experience. And they've been doing this since... Halloween of last year and the three of us decided to finally go and check it out and we didn't really know what to expect and basically you drive through and you go back in time to 1985 and drive your car through some of the best and most iconic scenes from Stranger Things like StarCorp and Soviet agents and Billy and his bitch and Camaro and like all everything was there so we're going to kind of like I guess recap our experience because we kind of all did it but then we didn't talk about it we sort of saved what our responses were for the podcast yeah I think that we're nearing the a time where these things might not be around as much as COVID starts to wane. Mm-hmm. I think these special, unique events and interactive activities that have popped up are going to start to disappear. So, yeah. you know, maybe if people hear us talking about it, they'll go to the one in their town, whatever it might be. So, yeah. What did you think, Ian? I loved it. And I think we all really enjoyed our time because, you know, I think like a lot of people, the three of us have just been kind of sitting in our homes, not doing a lot, not going to Puerto Vallarta. (laughs) So, you know, we were there and suddenly I was like, oh, my God, am I here with my friends, like having fun in the outside world? Oh, my God. And seeing a show. It felt so special. Like, I didn't care that I was just (laughs) in the back of your car. I was like, ooh, something's happening. I'm excited. (laughs) And we're all together. And part of it was just you guys, you know, like. You're the company that you're keeping regardless of what was happening outside of the windows of the car. And we'll get to that. But mm-hmm. it, was, it was just kind of fun and special to say, like, we're out in the world and we're doing something, you know. And I think we're all so ready for a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I will say just on the subject of the things that are happening outside the car, the Stranger Things drive into experience is an experience from moment one to moment done. You know, when you go in, you're at the Starcourt Mall, you're waiting to get into, I think it's the Hawkins High High School reunion. Go Tigers. Go Tigers. Ooh, <laughs> claws up, go Tigers. <laughs> and, you know, we're sitting in the car and we look on the stage and there's these two uh, actors who are just jazzercising. And I'm listening to the radio and I hear like, okay, Susan, now lift those legs. I'm like, is that what's happening? And I realized, I was like, oh my God, that is. And they just transport you into this world. It's like the second that you drive your car in, you're in Hawkins, you're in Stranger Things. And I thought that that piece of it was incredible. 
It was really fun. And I think it took all of us a minute because we were just like flapping our gums and chatting it up. And we had like candy and popcorn and like the whole nine. And we were there. We were in the Starcourt Mall. And I'm like, are those girls jazzercising this entire time for like 20 minutes and talking? And like they were on the microphone, like Richard Simmons. I was like, this is unreal. It was so funny. Well, I think that it was really smart the way they did it, too, because right when we pulled in, we got checked in and everyone's really nice. But as soon as we kind of got in the queue, all these people ran over with like gift bags and food and can't all, I mean, how much free food did we get? I've had more free candy from the stranger things experience that I've had in the past year. And in I'm itself. Like, that's the clue to success right there. Just give people all kinds of free food and stuff. And they'll be like mega happy. Cause I was like, you know what? I don't even care what happens. Like, I'm happy. I'm so happy. We're Truly. sitting here in the car talking and laughing and watching jazzercise and eating all this free stuff. I'm like, I'm into Truly. it. I do want to point out that that just doesn't come with every ticket. You don't just get showered <laughs> with free food. Although we did. So if you have the option, buy in, get the candy, get the popcorn, spend the arm and the leg. Cause it really does make the experience like better. I think mm-hmm. the VIP is it the VIP ticket. Get You get like free things and stuff. Yeah. VIP, you get free beverages and you also get a really cute, commemorative photo which i have your photo uh it's my yeah, backpack got it. <laughs> i want it too it's really cute okay so you're sitting there you're in the whole hawkins high environment you're eating your food you're getting like a candy rush and yeah. then you start on the actual ride i guess you would call it right yeah so they have you drive through like a parking garage that has all kinds of lights and projectors and things that kind of make you feel like you're entering i suppose what's supposed to be like like a the facility down kind of oh i okay. the first part was that kind of like russian soviet facility yeah 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 so i assume you're going through the upside down somehow because you're going from hawkins to a, suddenly you're in the the russian facility right now how they get there or something yes like that? but uh, here's my interpretation of the whole thing and like people should keep this in mind if they decide to go i think it's more almost like an experiential collage mm-hmm. like this is a way to experience some of the most signature iconic moments of the stranger things series so you're at the mall you see the russian age you literally will see the demigorgon like running around the car and people are shooting at it and i don't know that it's meant to be taken as like a linear story because if it did then they did they fail oh to yeah tell the story. If, if it's linear it <laughs> Girl, makes absolutely <laughs> no sense whatsoever well i remember there was a point i think where all three of us just said I don't know what's happening, but then once we, <laughs> once we all kind of understood, oh, I'm not the only one who doesn't know what's happening. It's like, oh, okay, I can just turn my brain off. I can just have fun. Yeah, and and all of this is is narrated through the radio. Mm-hmm. So you know, you you tune into an AM station or whatever, and they're they're telling you like, you know, the actors are in front of you, and the, and so is the action, and it's being narrated by these kind of organic broadcasts that really cue you in as audience members. So the middle part is. A little confusing and maybe not as exciting. Mm -hmm. But then when you get to the end, you're on the roof. You know, you drive through the levels of the parking garage and then you end up on the roof, which was very impressive. I think the tactic that they use, and I said this when we were in the car because we were driving through the structure. And and when we say structure, this is an enormous 10 level parking structure, Los Angeles scale. I mean, it's huge. So it took us a long time to even drive through. And Drac was referencing the upside down parts. You did see the Russian agents at first with the Demigorgon running around, but then it got very dark and there were vines everywhere and multiple projection screens, snow, just like the Netflix series. And they were flashing things from the series and you got this sense of disorientation and it was foggy and then you land to the roof and I thought they've really lowered my expectation here you know the mall was really cute driving through the structure was kind of questionable but when you got to the roof it was like 
they let out all the stops and really hit you with like a level 10 experience. The 10 level parking garage got to level 10. Literally got to level 10. Yeah, we definitely (laughs) went from like Los Angeles haunted hayride Mm -hmm. up to Universal (laughs) Horror Nights. Yes, exactly. And I love them both. (laughs) I'm not trying to knock either one. Truly. And I think something that I've kind of thought about since we've gone is that middle section where they have kind of these screens where you're viewing weird disconnected things from the show. There's a lot of strobe lights. And in the moment, I was kind of like, hmm, I don't know how I feel about this. But since I've had a little time to think, I'm like, oh, this is actually very smart kind of producing and time management because they force you to sit in this little area while the show upstairs is going on, which is maybe like 20 or 30 minutes. So by the time you're done with your little appetizer, they funnel you up to the top. And it's kind of an impressive thing. Like there's hundreds and hundreds of vehicles all running through this thing seamlessly. Like there was never a moment where I was like, "Ooh, girl, we're backed up. This is taking forever." I was like, "It is." That's I mean, true. Just that's a good claim. Very impressive. When you did go to the top, what I found myself doing, and I know you guys did too, was you're faced with a new environment, and it was very difficult to discern what am I looking at. And it reminded me of being in like a theater. If you've ever mm. gone to a Broadway show, and you know, sometimes I've those never go- been. What's a th- the theater. Well, let the me theater. tell your little uncultured ass. It is, <laughs> it is very special because they can build out fantasies that you're not ready for. And when the curtain opens, the magic is there. And, and it was very much like that, even though there was no curtain. I wasn't sure what I was looking at. Is this a build out of that abandoned steel mill from one of the later seasons? Is this an LED wall? Like, what am I about mm-hmm. to see? I thought that was magic in itself because it was also huge. Yeah, I think there is a lot of magic to it. And there's also, like you said, it's a theatrical element because the first section of it, you know, they have these kind of jazzercise girls or they have like there's a DJ and then you go into that Russian structure. But by the time you get to the top, it's a full blown theatrical experience. There's actors, there's people flying on those kind of strings, there's yeah. lasers. It's like the whole gullagaloo. It's everything. You know, you just reminded me talking about theater you know joking about it what's the first theater show you ever went to do you remember i was so young no i I don't know that i do do you remember no but i used to be a fat theater nerd (laughs) like i was in a lot of like little productions you were a plus size theater nerd we're not body shame around here pleasantly plump what was dummy thick Oh, oh no, not dummy thick. I no. said that earlier today. Draco's oh, really? never say that again. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Why? Why do you ask? No, I because I remember the first theater show that I ever went to was the cask of Amontillado. Yeah. And I was, I was really you, young. I really? And, I'm, and I'm, I was just thinking, I'm like, who would take it's like my class went to that and I'm oh, talking like I was like six or seven. You. That's and I'm intense. Like, why would they take kids? That's to wild. That? Yeah. I was just remembering that. I was like, cause you're talking, you know, I was talking about theater and I was thinking about spooky yeah. theater and I was like, why did that happen? Anyways, yeah. So that happened. Wow, interesting. <laughs> I mean, exposure to an Edgar Allan Poe theatrical experience at age six. No wonder you've turned out the way that you have. Well, I mean, I didn't understand <laughs> it at all. I remember being like, I like this. It's spooky, you know, but like, I didn't know why. Do you totally. think that Nightingale Triple X stage managed that show or? Maybe. It's possible. <laughs> I mean, probably. It's possible. Through the ages. Back to Hawkins and back to the Stranger Things driving experience. I mean, I think it was completely worth it. And the way they built it, too, it went from, wow, this is so fun. And like, oh, this is changing. And now here are the Soviets and I'm in the upside down up to this kind of like super high end production on the roof that lasted for a good like 20 minutes with like Ian said flying characters and the background was changing. It's all LED. And it was just it was really incredible. 
Yeah, I would say if you are a fan of Stranger Things, then there are so many references and so many things to really enjoy about it. I am not 100% caught up on Stranger Things, but I found that the experience overall was probably one of the most fun things I've done all year because I went with my friends. All right, so before we end the discussion about Stranger Things, I'm just going to put this out there because we had an idea we were going to do this theatrical production, or I wanted to do this theatrical production that we did not get to after season one. And I know now that we're too busy to do it, so here's a free idea for whoever (laughs) wants to pick it up. I wanted to do a parody play starring some of the competitors from season one of Dragula. So I wanted to do Stranger Miss Things. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, I wanted remember. I wanted Vander to be 11, and I wanted Meatball and Pinche and Zochi <laughs> to be like the kids. <laughs> I forget who. I think Frankie was going to be the Demi Gorgon, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> we had it all plotted out. I remember this pretty well. Such a good idea, I but know, we were too right? busy. We didn't end up being able to make it. So Peaches Christ, if you're listening and you want to produce a play that probably isn't going to work, but I did design this to be at precinct. So we're talking like a hundred seats. I wasn't mm. looking for like a thousand. The seat sellout. Yeah. yeah. Well, you never know. It maybe it'll have life in the future. <sighs> maybe I hope the stranger missed things drive in experience. Ooh. <laughs> so, you know, encapsulating the Stranger Things driving experience. If you are into time traveling back to Hawkins 1985 and experience all the best moments from Stranger Things, I think it's a really fun thing to do. And if you have the opportunity to do it, you definitely should. And while we're giving advice out on this development in the world of horror entertainment, Ian, why don't you keep the blood flowing and let us know what other news you have brought for us from the horror world. On the last episode of Creatures of the Night, we broke from our regular format because of the huge Boulay Brothers Dragula announcement, and honestly, with the news of Season 4 launching on Shudder, casting officially underway, and a grand prize of $100,000, I felt like listeners absolutely got their fill of the only current event that mattered. But since then, the worlds of Hollywood and horror have shambled forward at a ghoulish pace. Before we get into all things terrifying on TV, I did want to discuss a real news story that I felt was a perfect fit for Creatures of the Night. While on a recent fishing trip with her family in Virginia Beach, 25-year-old Brittany Pennington spotted something unusual peering out from the reeds of the riverbank. Upon taking a closer look with binoculars, Pennington and her boyfriend determined that they had come across a young woman's naked corpse, prompting them to call the police. According to news outlets covering the story, multiple police vehicles and full EMT escort, including 30 police officers, arrived shortly after to exhume the body and conduct an investigation. After police officers managed to pull the body from the muck, they made a decision telling Pennington, quote, we won't be conducting any further investigation. The reason? The body that had been discovered was actually a hyper-realistic silicone sex doll, complete with human hair wig and fully articulated joints. <gasps> what What did she do to get discarded like that? I know. Or what fantasy did her Ooh. owner try to play out with a That's sex doll and demanding. not a real Ooh, girl? creepy. Ooh. I was just thinking that she got wore out from the floor out. <laughs> But I think you can get replacement parts. (laughs) Her daddy has to be rich because aren't those things like really expensive? Yeah, no, girl, they are. I mean, I did a little Googling. You know, they range anywhere from like, you could buy like the low end model, which is like just the torso for like, you know, a couple hundred. But like, girl, you could be spending thousands of dollars on that hyper-realistic pussy. With a humor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now I want to know what are they going to do with her? (laughs) What are they going to do with her now? That's the question. (laughs) 
Well, according to the articles that I read, they just threw it in the trash. Really? Well, I don't think anyone wanted this secondhand. Can, can you sell a, a refurbished murder victim secondhand? I mean, someone's into that. Stuff. Oh, you know. Probably. You know Victoria could have turned that into a ride at Universal Studios or something. <laughs> I think it already got ridden at Universal Studios enough. Oh, my God. I'm about to walk away from this table. It's the first. It's iconic. It's the first ever murdered sex doll. <laughs> There's a murder my pussy joke in there somewhere. Oh my god, Drake! If you're listening, murder my vagina. Okay, focus <laughs> up. Moving away from stories about abandoned sex dolls, I have two news stories involving horror franchises that may be making their mark off-screen soon. First, real-life Bond villain in training, Elon Musk, has cryptically been discussing the viability of creating a real-world Jurassic Park complete with novel species of replicated dinosaurs. Max Hodak, the co-founder of Neuralink, Elon Musk's new tech innovation that seeks to link the human brain to the digital world in case you needed a Black Mirror episode in your everyday life, tweeted that within 15 years, the company could be breeding dinosaurs and create their own Jurassic Park. If this isn't the start of a genetically modified dino horror movie, I don't know what is, but either way, you heard it on Creatures of the Night first. I am convinced the Elon Musk is going to become some sort of supervillain that we have to form yes. a crackpot team of misfits together <laughs> to go take him out, right? Are you saying specifically that the Creatures of the Night team is going to have to take him out? And friends. Oh, I'm, right. Yeah. I am loving this. I'm really liking this He's idea. He's such a supervillain. It's true. Totally. He did give one gift to the world, though, he, and he gave it directly to Cardi B, because if she ever had an issue finding a word to rhyme with Bodak and Bodak Yellow, she could use his cohort, Max Hodak, to put right in her next rhyme, because that's exactly what I thought of. Wow. <laughs> ding. <laughs> ding. Ding, ding, ding. I like to think that when we go battle Elon Musk, we'll also have to battle Grimes, which I don't know. I'm kind of seeing as like that battle her because she stopped us from licensing a song with a little behind the scenes (laughs) tea for you. I think think Drak and Swan are going to double team Grimes right into the ground. That's right. Bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) And for the day walkers among us, Columbia Pictures has just announced a brand new water park that will feature a Ghostbusters themed area. In addition to the Ghostbusters ride, which is being touted as the world's first totally enclosed water dome family raft ride, visitors will also be haunted by Hotel Transylvania themed areas, as well as a Men in Black ride. Unfortunately for U.S. listeners, the water park is set to open in Bangsaray, Thailand, but who knows, maybe we'll take a trip to Pangina Hills and, you know, visit the new water park on our way out. I would love to go visit Pangina Hills. Pangina Hills is a fierce performer. Love her. Next level major. You know, she has a club there now. Yeah. It, I think it's really? House of Heels. Yeah. I, I, may, so. I may be wrong on that, but I'm just recalling from social. Like I know that she was able to do something kind of extraordinary during pandemic and it would be so fun to see her. Bringing things back inside to the air-conditioned world of on-screen nightmares, I have a slew of announcements and updates to tear through, beginning with a few projects to look forward to. A24 has announced a brand new horror movie starring Maria Bakalova, who recently made headlines for her Oscar nomination in Borat 2. The Oscar-nominated actress will star in the upcoming movie titled Bodies, Bodies, Bodies that has been dubbed a secret slasher from the studio. I love that film title. It's cute, right? It's evocative. I don't know what to expect, but I kind of love that. Think it has anything to do with that sex doll? (gasps) You never know. Oh my God. (laughs) Wow. Perfect. A huge deal has just been announced via deadline between Sony Pictures Entertainment and Netflix, with the streaming platform receiving exclusive rights to upcoming Sony titles after their theatrical release. 
The deal officially starts with next year's vampire Marvel movie starring Jared Leto, Morbius, and will include the upcoming Uncharted movie starring Tom Holland, with many more to come. No word on how long the release window for the theatrical releases will be, but it seems like Netflix is aiming to get more big-name titles to their platform after the big partnerships we've seen this year with HBO Max and Paramount+. I'm confused. I thought that Morbius, wouldn't it? It's a Marvel property. Wouldn't it end up on Disney or no? Who knows? That's really strange. It's even stranger that she made a cameo in Necroscope and now she's here. Now she's here. <laughs> That's Mobius. <laughs> not the, like, huh? not the Morbius, Morbius strip. <laughs> and finally, after the success of DC's Snyder Cut, many this week were shocked, not me, to learn that the Aquaman spinoff, The Trench, had been scrapped and sent to development hell. The film was slated to be produced by James Wan, and it was described as a full-on monster horror movie taking place in Aquaman's trench. Personally, I'd love to see what one-eyed monster is hiding in Aquaman's trench, but it seems like Warner Bros. is less interested. <laughs> so, she saw the how opening. long did you spend on that one? <laughs> I gotta tell you, when I pulled this article, I was like, okay, the trench, horror movie, and I was writing, I was like, oh god, I hate Aquaman, it's so... Aquaman's trench, <laughs> one-eyed monster. Oh, they're gonna love it, girl. A girl. <laughs> you know, I think they made the right decision. Even though I got really excited about seeing some of the creatures that they showed when they referenced the trench in the Aquaman mm-hmm. movie was kind of exciting. But to see what they did after seeing New Mutants and what they did with that <sighs> horror movie, it was a nightmare and not in a good way. So I'm glad that they abandoned this idea too. I. Do not like what they did with Aquaman and the DC Universe movies. Yeah. I hate the first Aquaman. I hope they never make another one. The first Aquaman is terrible. And I also feel like they nerfed the shit out of her for Snyder Cut. I was like, so what? Her power is nothing? Like, she has no powers. She has Trident of 10. <laughs> <laughs> but she's rolling that ones the whole time, baby. <laughs> well, it's better than Batman. All he could do is crawl out of a hole at the end. Don't oh, forget. Well, I mean, they're both hot. So, okay. Let's <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we are going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll be sharing our thoughts on what's considered to be the very first zombie film ever created. The independently produced White Zombie. Don't go away. Calling all creatures of the night. Wizard World has just launched their first Wizard World signature series with an exclusive lineup of the biggest names and terrifying titles in horror. For the uninitiated, Wizard World is bringing together the biggest talent across the genre for an international 10-event streaming series available now. Featuring stars from Hollywood horror classics like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, to new visions of terror like Stephen King's It and What We Do in the Shadows, Wizard World is bringing horror fans closer to their nightmares than ever before. To purchase tickets and for more information, visit wizardworld.com. Plus, find exclusive memorabilia and interact one-on-one with series talent and influencers at wizardworldvault.com. Creatures of the Night listeners can use the exclusive promo code PODCAST100, that's PODCAST100, at wizardworld.com forward slash dread to be among the first 100 to get a free ticket to the horror panel of their choice.
Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to this episode's Creature Feature Movie Review. Inspired by our rewatch of Night of the Living Dead, we wondered what the very first zombie movie is, and our search brought us to the pre-Haze Code American horror movie from 1932 titled White Zombie. The screenplay was adapted from William Seabrook's book, The Magic Island, and tells the story of a young woman's transformation into a zombie at the hands of a voodoo master. We'd like to point out that some of the subject matter four-way zombie is completely inappropriate and rooted in American cinema's racist history. There are instances of blackface, and it may be triggering for some. Let's talk about the depiction of the zombie and how it differs from what we may have expected or what we've grown to expect when we hear the term zombie movie, because it was very different in this film. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really refreshing. I thought it was interesting because I remember, you know, there's a lot of old movies where the depictions of zombies is not that they're dead. They're sort of like possessed by a voodoo doctor, like that sort of energy. And so I thought it was neat to see that, um, especially when we talked about watching Night of the Living Dead, which for people at home, that's how we got onto white zombie. We started, mm-hmm. we watched Night of the Living Dead. And we're like, God, what, when did zombies start appearing in film? And, and when did they start appearing this way in particular? It drew us back to white zombies. So that's how we stumbled upon this in the first place. Exactly. So I thought that that was the way that they presented zombies was kind of interesting. What yeah. did you think, Ian? Um, I agree with you. I think that the way they portrayed them is very kind of classic, like Haitian voodoo, um, which reminds me of A Haunting of History that we did a few episodes ago about a Haitian voodoo doctor and kind of one of the oldest actual zombies in recorded history. Narcissa Narcissus? Uh, Clairvius Narcisse. Yeah. Oh, yes. Good yes. recall. Yes. Um, yeah. So for that reason, I did think the depiction of them was interesting. And what I really loved There's a lot of things that I didn't love about this movie, but one thing that I really did love from the very beginning is, you know, we have the two main characters, they roll up in their carriage, and the first thing that happens is, zombies. And it was kind of like, I love a world that establishes, we already know that there are zombies here. Because I feel like so many times when you see a zombie movie, it's like, there's an outbreak of infected something-somethings, and we have no, I'm like, girl, they're zombies, duh. (laughs) And I think, too, that because you know, this is an old movie when telecommunications weren't as crazy as they are now that I feel like regionally you could go somewhere and be like, oh, this is accepted here. Like there are zombies here and people know about it and talk about it. You wouldn't necessarily hear about it back in the United States or wherever you're from. It's adapted from the book, The Magic Island. You mm-hmm. knew like you were in the deep jungle on an island in the Caribbean and maybe you're next to like pseudo mystical experiences and that's what happens here. Yeah, today, if anything happens, it's like it's on Snapchat, it's mm-hmm. on TikTok. <laughs> Like yeah, five totally. seconds later, but different back then. I also thought this was really interesting because I think historically, if you do any studying or if you're curious about different mysticisms around the world, this kind of like psychoactive substance approach mm-hmm. to like air quotes zombification, I think has some historical significance. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, you know, a voodoo practitioner could poison you with a variety of like uh, toxins from like the plant animal world and bring you to this kind of like catatonic state where you're susceptible to suggestion and you have no willpower and there's like confusion and hallucination, you could effectively become their mind slave. And mm-hmm. this is the zombie of white zombie. 
Yeah, I also thought it was interesting, the portrayal of the zombies. We see some of that in modern zombie culture as well. You know, they're kind of the shambling horrors. You know, they have the blank stares. And I think some of those things do carry on. You know, we don't really see zombies performing tasks anymore. But I think that this movie established that. And it was like that for, I think, maybe like 20 years. Where it was like, you know, zombies are just, they're kind of just mindless thralls. Mm. But it did make me question the reality of this movie when it was like, okay, these zombies just push baskets around or whatever. But then, you know, when the main character, Madeline, is zombified, she's playing the piano. And she's playing the piano better than anyone that I know in my personal life. I was like, okay, so how mindless are these zombies? It almost seemed like he was making her play the piano because he would do that weird hand gesture (laughs) and then they would start to do whatever he Mm, wanted. But I don't know. You know, also the idea that these zombies aren't dead, obviously. Mm -hmm. But they go through some sort of metamorphosis because she was poisoned they thought she was dead so obviously her heart stopped or whatever would tell a doctor that she's dead they bury her and then they go get her but later on at the end remember he was trying to zombify that other the main guy that was like trying to enlist Mm -hmm. his help in the first place yeah and he didn't go through any kind of death he just drank the stuff and started changing so I thought that was kind of inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's overall one of my issues with the movie is it's hard to look at a classic film through the same lens that we look through modern film because so many things have changed, you know, in the way that we make movies and we view movies. But I do also think that this movie is pretty lacking when it comes to the writing. Like, I think it's really thin and we're kind of getting out of the silent film era. So there's a lot of times where the writing is just really strange and characters are acting in a certain way that I'm kind of like, oh, this would have flown in the silent film era, but now we just have characters making these like really big hand gestures or like class, like Bella Lugosi clasping his hands and we're just supposed to infer that it's like, oh, right, he mind controlling them. It's a little right. loose. It is interesting because uh, Bella Lugosi's character, and I believe his name is Murder Legendre, mm-hmm. or Legendre, I think it can be pronounced either way. What a name. I think that's kind of epic. His character kind of straddles the world of like, is this the toxicological zombie thrall of Haitian voodoo tradition? Or is this a supernatural transformation? And I think with that little hand motion, we kind of straddle both worlds. Mm -hmm. It's the intoxication through toxicology and control. But then there's some kind of like imprinting his will over the will of the weak. And it has a very like supernatural Mm -hmm. context to it as opposed to like toxicological. Yeah. You know, I want to remind us and point out that this film was created pre Hayes code. And I think we have to talk about race and the way that race is kind of like handled and portrayed Mm -hmm. in white zombie, particularly there's an indigenous elder who is kind of portrayed as like a wise man. He has secrets that one of the main characters needs. I mean, and this is quite obviously someone in blackface. This is a white actor mm-hmm. painted as a black person to play, you know, a Haitian guy on like sort of like the side of the road with secrets that he needs to kind of like forward the tale. And it's shocking to me just as like a modern viewer, you know, I know that this kind of stuff happens, but when I see it, I'm like, this is ridiculous and offensive, but also it completely diminishes the story. Like for no good reason, do mm-hmm. we see this kind of stuff? And to even back up what you're saying about there's no good reason, there's literally a black actor at the very beginning of the film as well. So to right. have a black actor in a film in the 1930s, but then to just 60 minutes later, turn around and be like, oh, well now we have blackface. It's completely unnecessary. It's ridiculous. It's inappropriate. And it's just strange. I'm thinking that it's for no other reason than racism. I think Amazon has a warning added to Mm -hmm. the film, too, which is good because, you know, 
warned you before you get into it that that's going to happen. It reminds us that these issues and some of the things that we've been facing today and specifically in the last year and Black Lives Matter and those inequalities that we still experience in the United States today and, and all over the world. But, you know, these things, these fights, these issues have been with us for a long time time. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think that something like the inclusion of blackface in a film like this only serves to further weaken and destroy kind of the impact of the movie. You know, it's hard to talk about a film where you say, oh, this is the first zombie movie ever made. And you want to look back on it and you want to say, oh, wow, like what an important piece of culture. But then you have to talk about the fact that there is blackface and it's just it's unfortunate that it's in there at all. I'd like to just touch briefly on the fact that Bela Lugosi has been cast as the Haitian voodoo master. And there may have been some historical significance of white people occupying Haiti since like the 1400s or whatever it is. But I think in anyone's mind, a traditional Haitian voodoo master would be a black person. Mm -hmm. And to portray a white person in that role, living in a beautiful castle on the hill and having all of the control and all of the opulence, it's gross. And it kind of underlines the same thing that blackface does to me. It's like this kind of like inequity and casting and the portrayal of like the different uh, races of the characters in the film. So that's just the reality of white zombie. It could too have to do with the idea of like European settlers taking advantage of the indigenous people, you know, using them for labor, that sort of thing and sort of building his own empire. I mean, clearly he was using his, uh, voodoo powers to (laughs) enslave all sorts of people from all sorts of races too. Yeah. I think there's definitely a reading of the film where we can look at it that way. Unfortunately, I don't think that's how they meant it in the 1930s. But, you know, there's definitely I think you're totally right. Like you could absolutely read it as like, oh, this is making a comment on race. Okay, so moving on, what do you guys think stands out about White Zombie? Because it definitely has like a flavor, a flavor of the time being created in like 1932. We see things in this film that we just don't see in modern filmmaking other than like Bela Lugosi being the main character. Like, does anything else sort of like jump out at you? There were a couple of things for me. Um, My favorite thing, hands down, is the design of the, I guess, the vulture familiar. Mm. I love the way that they signal the vulture every time with this kind of I mean, honestly, the scariest part of the movie is this cry. It's like a scream. Yeah, it's like a human scream. Yeah, it was like a primal, almost kind of like female scream. I mean, I'm I'm watching the movie and I hear this like, I was like, oh my God. And then suddenly it's this like weirdo puppet vulture. I'm like, ah, my favorite character. Yes. (laughs) I kind of love the vulture too. And I recognize the connection (laughs) between the voodoo master and the vulture kind Mm -hmm. of immediately. But one of the things that I loved about watching White Zombie was kind of like the lost art in these examples of these hand-painted map backgrounds. Yes. Because this is something that happened in Hollywood for years and is really kind of part and parcel of motion picture making forever before CGI and they could literally go to these places. We had these skilled artists who would create these fantastic backgrounds and then they kind of blended them in a lot of shots where you saw the huge castle on the hill and then the waves crashing at its mm-hmm. feet. And obviously this was some kind of like trick of the hand-painted background and the camera work, but it's really effective and really beautiful. I did write that down as a note. Um, I thought that the sets were beautiful whenever they did happen. The interior of Murder's Castle, as well as the exterior, I think that those sets are really beautiful. It did make me think, though, my one really big gripe with the movie is the very end, kind of the final battle between Murder and the main characters. And I know Drac and I kind of briefly talked about this earlier today. <laughs> I wasn't there, what? Oh, well, it's like, okay, so, you know, Murder, like Andre, is this Haitian voodoo master. You know, he has all the knowledge of 
poisons and of mind control. And he's like, go, my like my zombie thralls attack. And then the other guy just pushes her off the fucking ledge and just, no, falls. I was like, well, damn, that's all you had to do to kill her? And I said the same thing happened in Return of the Jedi. Oh, my God. It's so the true. same thing. Darth Vader just walked up and picked up the Emperor and threw him in a hole. That's it. That's all you have to Why are these rebels causing all this? All they had to do was go in there and throw him down a hole and it'd be over. Wow. It's the same thing. I also thought it was hysterical how, like, each of the zombies just kind of just lobbed himself off the side uh-huh. unceremoniously. Yeah. They're just like, okay, I'm dead. Good night. <laughs> forever. <laughs> Remember, you're in hell forever. Um, there is one thing that I really loved, and I think the way that they designed Madeline's makeup, her makeup directly influenced the makeup for Corpse Bride from Tim Burton. Oh. You know, and I just, looking at her, I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, Hollywood starlets and Hollywood stars don't paint like that anymore. I just thought it was so beautiful and so sad looking and that was one thing as soon as she appeared on screen i was like oh yes fierce love her makeup now i can see that i think it was very stereotypical of a female of her social standing during that time yeah we've we've done that makeup a couple of times and you know sometimes it's successful and <laughs> sometimes. sometimes it's not that's just a warning for those of you that might try it <laughs> there was uh there was one effect that i saw and i immediately loved it and i kind of recognized it as being repeated in brom stoker's Dracula, the Mm. Francis Ford Coppola one. And it's a scene, I think it happens toward the beginning of the movie. And this film is only like an hour and 10 minutes, but you see the the Haitian voodoo master's eyes and like a close up of his eyes kind of superimposed Mm -hmm. over of them traveling in their horse and carriage kind of on their way to the castle. And it's kind of gives you this idea of this omniscience of like this, the villain in, in the story. And in this case, it's the voodoo guy, but in Bram Stoker's it's Dracula. And I'm like, wow, these, these tricks, like these tropes have been repeated since the 30s, like for 70, 80, 90. I mean, who knows how many years these things get repeated through film. Well, even going back another year, I think 1931 was when Bela Lugosi first played Dracula. And that was what they did. They had, you know, just the eyes. And it was mm-hmm. like, for whatever reason, everyone was like, oh, my God, Bela Lugosi's eyes are so scary. <laughs> um, you know, and it's cool because, I mean, on the other side, too, we get that kind of like, you know, I think we call it like the Morticia lighting. But really, yeah. it's the Bela Lugosi lighting. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think overall, I you know, aside from the inappropriateness of the movie, I enjoyed it. I love old movies like this. I like that it was short, too. You know, that is an easy watch. To me, it transports you to a different time and a different dimension. And I enjoy that. Surely. I mean, definitely a piece of Hollywood horror history with glaring reminders of American cinema's racist past. All right, and now it's time to move on to the Creatures of the Night Literary Review and pick back up with Brian Lumley's epic vampire classic, Necroscope. So as those of you at home know, we skipped the book review last episode due to the special Dragula casting announcement. So spoiler alert, this will be the final Necroscope review as we will be discussing the entire rest of the book. And I repeat, this is the last installment of Necroscope in Swanthula's Book nook. Oh, <laughs> embracing it now. I'm gonna make t-shirts. Oh, I'm gonna play Ooh. with it. Okay. <laughs> we actually have a lot of material to cover because we're pretty much doing like the last half of the book. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna kind of present some different topics and see what you guys think about this so we can get kind of the overall feel of what happens and concludes in Brian Lumley's vampire classic necroscope. So now that we've read the whole thing, what do you guys think of the overall world that Brian Lumley created? The world of ESP and government in intrigue and vampires and these different powers and all of that sort of blending into this tapestry of the supernatural. 
I personally love this world. I'm a huge fan of Brian Lumley's Necroscope series, even the books beyond this one. So I I subscribe to it like hook, line, and sinker. I love the the roughness of it. It's very dark and cold and military feeling, but also it has that old ancient vampire kind of darkness and evil to it. I love his take on vampires and the supernatural and how brutal it is. Mm. I appreciate that because it's very contrasting to a lot of the vampire stuff that we were getting during like the 80s and 90s. It's a real different take. Oh, completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I'm I'm into it. What do you think, Ian? I'm going to agree. I'm very into it. I did feel like there was a little bit of a pacing issue for me at the last maybe like two chapters of the book because I feel like the world that's established is like Track said, there's vampires and there's espionage and there's military and there's a hardness to it. And then we're very quickly introduced to this idea of like, okay, well now there are, spoiler alert, now there are zombies and now there is time travel and now it's interdimensional Mobius strip and it just, it kind of blew my wig completely off. Mm -hmm. And I definitely am not saying that I dislike that. I think it just kind of, it took me from like first gear to fifth gear in one chapter. I was like, oh, oh my God, holy shit. The world has gotten so big. Super abrupt. But, you know, I'm thinking overall uh, for maybe 80 to 90% of the experience of Necroscope, I was also like in love with this world. I love the idea that there are different iterations of these kind of like ESP uh, wings of the government. And they often make reference to the Russians being very advanced, but the British are also way out in front. The Americans don't really, they just toy with it. They don't mm-hmm. take it so seriously, but the Chinese have one and the French have one. And, and for me, like that just makes my mind go like, totally. imagining all of these different branches and who's about that. And now I want to read about the French versus the Chinese and just, you know, there's just yeah. there's so much intrigue kind of built in in what he doesn't say and just sort of alludes to. And the vampires are just the backdrop to that. You know, we pick up the book because we see a skull with like fangs on it and it's known as a vampire story, but the vampire takes a secondary role to the main character of this international intrigue, which I love. It's weird. The main character on the, I guess, let's say the good side, the British ESP side, you know, Harry to me is the most uninteresting part of the entire book. You know, I'm interested in Borowitz and Dragasani and what's happening there. And even with Gromley and all the British ESPers, but Harry, I'm like, I don't, Yeah, too concerned. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like they also did give Harry a little bit of like a Mary Sue complex where it's like, well, what problem do we have in this chapter? Well, I mean, girl, we got to know the password. (laughs) Suddenly she knows every password in the world. She knows time travel. I'm like, okay, like whatever the problem at hand, she's got a solution for it, which I don't love. And I got to say, I was sad to see some of those characters you listed go, you know, and they all Mm -hmm. have like fantastic deaths. But really, when they all died, I was like, oh, no, my girls. I think we're all in agreement. The world that Brian Lonely creates is interesting. It's hard. It's scary. It's surprising. And we wish we lived there. (laughs) <laughs> I think sometimes we, we do. We actually kind of do, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, just really quick, I kind of do feel like there's parallels between, you know, the casts and the building cast of Dragula and kind of this ESP branch. I'm like, the more you learn about the ESP branches, it's like, okay, well, there are seers and there are prognosticators and there's all these different people. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, well, now it's like, well, now there's Evas and there's Madelines and there's yeah. Zochis and there's <laughs> totally. monsters. And we like, have aliens and face stealers yeah. and, and werewolf girls. <laughs> <laughs> all oh. 
the Chateau Brunetzi. (laughs) Okay, so we've often said that a standout aspect of Necroscope is its unusual depiction of vampirism. So how would you guys describe the vampires of this world? And we've touched on it a little bit in in quickly in passing, but I think I'm going to take this real quick because there's a scene that comes up and I I can't recall the chapter, but it's definitely toward the end. And we have Dragasani finally coming to that cruciform hill. And this is the scene where uh, Tibor Ferexi comes out of the earth. Mm. The chains have been moved. The earth has been kind of like pulled up and out. And you get this description of this ginormous creature with hands that are way larger than you might have imagined and like scaled gray skin, glowing red eyes, like a bat-like nose kind of smashed into the elongated head, like this wolf-like head and these huge ears that just give off this kind of like bestial visage. And I'm like, I mean, my skin is like crawling. I'm getting goosebumps. Like I am loving literally everything that I'm reading about the way that this vampire is depicted. And then you add in like this symbiotic, like, a leech thing mm-hmm. that we all know is like, you know, intimately involved in the whole process. And it is crazy good, like in- unbelievable. Oh, yeah. The parasitic leech aspect of it is definitely my favorite part. Like the description of Tibor in his final form. I'm right there with you. I love everything about it. I love even what Dragasani is kind of becoming that sort of like monstrous vampire. But the best thing for me is really the internal parasite. And there's one description where it's towards the very end where Dragasani is kind of on his last leg. And it's like the parasite uncurls itself from his brain stem and like mm. it unwraps itself from his limbs and his organs. I was like, oh my God, it's just fully just whole. It's really, it's a parasite of a host. And I just thought it was so cool and just dark and visceral. I was like, oh my God, I love vampire aliens. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was wondering, cause you know, I've read this book before and I know you have too, but it's been a long time, but you haven't. I was wondering what your reaction was to Dragasani killing Tibor. Were you surprised or no? No. And I, well, I, I was not surprised that he killed him. I was surprised that Dragasani let it get that far because the entire time I was like, girl, he is totally fucking with you. And then finally it's like, he's like, you have to let the chains go. I'm like, sister girl, don't do it. And then, you know, when Max Batu comes up and it's like, he sees what's happening. I was like, girls, you better fucking move. (laughs) I mean, that scene too, where that, the black tentacle just kind of like struck him straight up and right off the ground. I mean, and I was kind of picturing that in my mind in this isolated weird cops of trees on this weird Romanian hillside under the moonlight and this crazy creature just about to like come out of the earth and finally reveal itself after we've been like dick teased for like (laughs) 700 pages. And I'm like, Oh my God, get there. Totally. I think the thing that did surprise me now that I'm thinking about it is really just the fact that, and I know that, I mean, obviously it was a labor to do it, but really just the fact that boom, he's dead. I was kind of like, Oh, oh my God, and the nightmare is over, which then we kind of get back to later. It's like, well, no, the nightmare is forever (laughs) (laughs) in infinity. (laughs) Totally. Okay, before we discuss the end of the story, do you guys have any sort of like standout scenes other than the ones that we've sort of touched on? Because we've 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 touched on a couple of kind of milestone moments in Necroscope. I mean, going back to some of our first reviews of the story, the infamous chapter two. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a couple along the way and some of the ones that we've discussed today, but are, are there any standouts that we haven't gotten to yet? I think there's one scene that we all collectively loved and we've kind of chatted about it briefly, but because it was in the first half of, I guess like this chunk of chapters we haven't really touched on is the death of Victor Shukshin. 
um, when Harry Keough kind of, you know, he plots to kill Victor. And it's kind of the first time that we get a sense of, oh, there is something more to Harry's power here. He goes from I speak to the dead to almost I summon the dead, Mm. which I was like, oh, my God, full blown because that to me is necromancy. You know yeah. what Dragasani does? It's like that's kind of a new take on necromancy for me. But when Harry's mom kind of comes out from the muck, I mean, I full on screamed. I was like, ah! I mean, we, we mentioned Friday the 13th, but I feel like it's a modern day reimagining yeah. of that moment when Jason comes out of the lake. I mean, except this time it was mom and it was just as scary. This actually might have been written before that act. If I'm not mistaken, oh my God. Oh. wouldn't that be interesting? To yeah, know? I'd have to look, but I, I it's very I similar right time, the same time like yeah. 85. And, you know, usually when you write a book, it doesn't automatically get published. So who knows when it was actually created, mm. how long it sat there? No, mm. but that was like a really awesome moment. And Harry was actually an interesting character then, too, because he was kind of playing Victor Shukshin a little bit, saying mm-hmm. like, I'm in Edinburgh and I'll be there in a few hours. But meanwhile, he's like basically right in the backyard, yeah. kind of like watching this guy go out and sort of plot his death and all the machinations that he went through Harry's watching kind of trembling from the hillside and then saying imagining like I'm almost watching history repeat itself I wonder if this is exactly how he killed my mother Mm. and I was like oh god this is like definitely giving me chills in the best way and then to have it culminate and under the ice and all that training and then his mother and I look at it as like he speaks to the dead, but he kind of almost reminds the dead that they have a will. They were a person. They can do things. They can maybe affect the physical world. Mm-hmm. Without the necroscope, they just sort of lull in a dream. But with someone like sparking their will and sparking their imagination, maybe they could dredge up their former human body out of the muck and the mud of you know, 20 years and come out like a, a weird <laughs> like spirit beast from the ice. I mean, that was hot. Totally. <laughs> It's time we talk about the ending, the ultimate conclusion of the tale of Necroscope. Okay, so I did not enjoy the ending of this book, and I knew that I didn't like it even when I read it the first time. It's odd because I love this book right up to the end, and I love the world that happens in that first 90%. Once Mm -hmm. we start getting to Mobius dimensions and all this sort of like Mm -hmm. timelines and everything, it's no longer the same book. That's sort of the ending was a turnoff for me. Also, the end, you know, once Harry decides he's going to make his move on the the chateau and this is it, this is the final battle. It really dragged out to me the whole fight and like describing all these guns and turrets. And I mean, we all know at the moment you can just teleport right behind this guy and stab him in the neck and it's over. So why are we going through this, you know, three hour tour? But yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't thrilled with the ending. Certainly not. I am going to, again, I'm going to agree with you on this one. I feel like the second that Mobius was introduced, I was like, okay, I can, I'm I'm here a little bit. And then we go through the Mobius door and we start time traveling to the Bible. And I was like, okay, we like visit this witch from the Bible. And I was like, I don't really love that that's happening. And then it almost feels like for a book that languished so much and in such such a beautiful way, it really rushed to be like, okay, well, this is the final chapter, so let's introduce time travel, introduce this, and also, they're zombies, for real! And it just, it felt a little, again, it felt a little sad because I kind of feel like Dragasani's character went from such a cool character who I really loved to being just kind of an ass in the final chapter. I'm like, maybe it's the the parasite of the, the vampire that's within him that's kind of changing the way that he's acting, but I was like, this character to me has been telegraphed the entire time as like a tactician, as someone who is 
brutal, but also is very intelligent. And suddenly he's just kind of acting like a madman and is so easily overtaken by the dead. And I was just kind of like, eh, all right, fine. I have to agree across the board. In fact, I don't even know if I would find anyone who walks the earth to say, (laughs) I loved the book and I loved the end. Mm. It makes me think that Brian Lumley had like some kind of like life event something that happened in in the course of him writing this book, because it seems like there's almost a distinct break. It's like once Harry discovers the Mobius door aspect of his abilities and powers, we have like the voice of like a different writer. The pace changes, the goals change, and it's just not quite as enjoyable as the previous 90% of the book. One of the things I think that is interesting, if you go on to continue to read the other books after this, mm-hmm. it sort of makes sense why it almost splits, right? Because mm-hmm. when I, I continue to read it, and there are actually two groups of spinoffs from this book. Necroscope goes on to be Necroscope 2, which is called Wamfiri, I believe. Mm-hmm. But then it goes into this other section, which is called The Last Airy. And and mm. I'm just I guess I'll go ahead and spoil it. it. Tell Essentially us. The the vampires, the leech creatures are from another world. Mm-hmm. So this goes into their home world, their home dimension, I guess you would say. Oh, I don't cool. know so much that it's a world. Maybe it's kind of a world. But yeah, so it goes into a whole offshoot that goes into the history of um, Tibor and Faithor and all their whole family lines. Mm. So it's really interesting. But the Necroscope series continues on with the story of Harry and, and all this stuff. Um so I almost wonder if it was maybe on purpose, you know? I mean, I could see potentially a world in which, you know, uh, the book has been written and editors are looking at it. People are saying, oh, the, you know, this is so incredible. There's already a sequel that's being greenlit. And suddenly it's like, OK, well, now I have to rewrite this ending so that mm. there is infinite possibilities and I can write all these different things versus how I imagined the book ending. Like, I think I said this a few episodes ago. Where I was like, the only thing that's left to happen is for everyone to just meet and then have a final battle. Which they do, but then suddenly it's like, oh, do 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 do. The <laughs> the ghost who's been talking to Alec Kyle the whole time was actually Harry Keogh. I was what? like, hey, oh, I God. like that though. I like That's that a too. very like sixth oh. sense zinger when you're like, oh my God, I am talking to a dead person. It's to me, that's the coolest part of like what they did, but it's all the Mobius door teleportation, time travel, <laughs> infinite lines of like maybe existing in multiple places at once. And I think it just kind of blows up your brain when you, you're you just like, Sherry, can we just get this back to like the Russians versus the English right. and like yeah. vampire versus necroscope? Well, speaking of blowing your brain up, like I, I'll tell everyone here. I don't think myself to be like necessarily like a dumb person, but I also don't think that I'm like a super genius. However, when I watch media or I read a book, I like to, you know, think, oh, I understand this. I finished the book and I just out loud said, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, that was disappointing because I, the entire time I was like, ooh, she's reading. Yes. But the end I was like, wait, did I miss something? Like, where are we? Yeah. It, it's, it's pretty heady, you know, yeah. it, especially if you're not into algebra or math or <laughs> physics or any of that. Yeah. You like know? parallel universes or even like different timelines of like possibility. You know what? I think Drac 
laid the seed. You planted the seed about the future of the Necroscope series and um, what that may bring. And who knows, maybe Ian and I kind of hit the chord of like, there could have been a success and maybe a rewrite of the end to sort of like imagine a future for this, but who knows? Yeah, I do want to say I have read all of the books afterwards. Wow. Yeah, if you're going to continue, which if anyone's interested, you should just continue on your own. We are not going to be reviewing the rest of the books because <laughs> this one was quite a hurdle to get through as it is and we're starting production, so fuck that. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> if, back, back to short stories for us. If either of you are interested, I do have all the series right over there in that cabinet by oh. my desk. So you can go pick it up anytime. And those of you at home, yeah, I, I would suggest continuing to read it. If you want to skip ahead, I think if you really love the ESP branch of it all, which is what I loved, I love the military mixed with the occult and all that, that sort of vibe picks back up in Necroscope Invaders, which is a later book. And it's fantastic. So if you if you're if you are into that energy, I would say skip ahead to that. We are going to take a break, and when we return, we'll be reaching into our bag of mail to answer some of our Creatures of the Night listener questions. Don't move. Happy halfway to Halloween, uglies. This April, Shudder is celebrating halfway to Halloween with their biggest month of programming to date. Earning the title of the Netflix of horror, Shudder is the premier streaming service for supernatural terrors, edge-of-your-seat thrillers, and shocking horror movies sure to make you squirm. Featuring the best selection of Hollywood's horror favorites, cult classic thrillers, and critically acclaimed supernatural originals and series, Shudder's library has such sights to show you, streaming uncut and commercial-free on all of your favorite devices. For $5.99 per month, Creatures of the Night listeners can stream the best and bloodiest selection of horror content exclusively on Shudder. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes terrifying titles like Color of Outer Space, Host, and The Mortuary Collections, must-see documentaries like Horror Noir, and shocking original series content including new episodes of Creep Show from The Walking Dead's Greg Nicotero and The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs every week. Plus, make sure to stream our personal favorite, the Boulay Brothers' Dragula Resurrection, to stay caught up before the launch of the Boulay Brothers' Dragula Season 4, exclusively on Shudder. Get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content tonight. To try Shudder free for 30 days and to take advantage of Shudder's biggest content month ever, visit Shudder.com. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and use promo code Boulay at checkout. Do it or die. All right, Dirty Darlings, we're back and we're going to take some time to answer some of our listener questions. Aaron writes, after hearing a short snippet of your opinions on Chopping Mall in episode 18 with Barbara Crampton, I'm dying to hear your thoughts on more 80s campy horror films. Do you have any favorites? There are so many. I think we've talked about this a little bit. I like Terror Train from the 80s. Swan hates it. Um, I, I just mean, don't think Terror Train belongs on anyone's favorite list. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We rewatched it recently and it 
certainly wasn't as scary today as it was when I watched it way back when. I kind of want to remake that movie and make it very terrifying. But the final scene, I think, is super scary and terrifying. Like, maybe one of the most terrifying scenes in a movie that I can think of. The end when he falls off the train in the snow down into the ice. It's just so... Oh, no, that is really good. You know? and, yes, and that's he's like, really has good. that like gender dysmorphia happening. He's like freaking out. And it's just really interesting. I didn't even see until like, I think during the pandemic, maybe just before the pandemic, I had never seen it before. And I fell in love with it because it's so ridiculous. And it definitely falls into this category is killer clowns from outer space. Oh yeah. That's yeah. one of my favorites. Oh God. It's so great. Yeah, I mean, sick. it's so good. And I think that's another haunt they did. Was it universal? Yeah. And yeah. they did an amazing job of it mm-hmm. too. Yeah. yeah. And of course, like there's the reanimator and, um, what other there's ones? So are- many good ones. Yeah. Frank and hookers kind of oh, fun God, in a bad totally. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad eighties horror. And, um, night of the demons. That's another like really kind of weird one. That's cool. And I think lays down the precursor to Nancy from the craft was like lifted right from that movie. Holly says, I think Swan predicted we'd be getting COVID shots in March on one episode of creatures of the night in 2020. I'm getting mine this morning. So she was right. Does she get ice cream or the horror equivalent of that as a prize? Well, Holly, thank you for recognizing my superior psychic powers. And the answer is no. The only thing that I get is the satisfaction of knowing that I'm a deadly bitch who can sometimes predict the future. Justin asks, I've been sometimes explosively blossoming into my true queer nature over the last several months. And while I do recognize my own personal progress, I do also realize that Swan, Drac, and Ian had no small part in it. I work in a straight male-dominated industry, and it isn't always easy being out. What recommendations do you three have about dealing with and overcoming the obstacles presented by being queer in the workplace? I'll start. For me, I feel like you just have to live out loud. You have to live out loud and unapologetically and just deal with it. I mean, be respectful. I'm not the type of person, not not everyone's going to agree with this. I'm not the type of person that flaunts things in people's faces necessarily, but I certainly don't shy away or hide my true nature. So I would say just live proudly who as you are respectfully and that's it ian you're like obnoxiously queer how do you do it (laughs) (laughs) um yeah you know i think that i've never been able to hide my queerness like i've always been really effeminate and i've always just kind of you know been singled out as like oh you know he's queer so i would say in terms of like survival i would agree like you know be yourself just don't be afraid of who you are But I do also think that depending on the workplace you're in, there's a time and a place for everything. And what I mean by that is if you're at work and you're supposed to be discussing work related stuff, just go ahead and discuss work related stuff. Not everything needs to be this like I have to talk about queer issues 100 percent of the time because sometimes it's just not really what's being discussed at hand. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. And I think another aspect of it might be a little bit of this too, like sort of cultivate pride that you are who you are and you are Mm -hmm. how you are because there was a long time in me growing up where I didn't necessarily take pride in that. I was such an outcast and a weirdo and I'm queer and like, you know, relating to so few people that torture and that torment kind of quickly became the thing that like set me apart in a way that I am so grateful. And I thank the universe every day that I'm gay and I would never want it any other way. So if you carry that energy with you, uh, you don't have to flaunt it and they don't have to like it. No one has to like it, but you'll go where the getting is good and you recognize your allies and, you know, kiki with them. And you don't, I mean, most of these other guys are like miserable assholes anyway, so (laughs) you don't have anything to prove to them. I'm sort of torn because part of me always wants to tell people 
like get out of there. Get out. You don't have to work mm-hmm. in that environment or be in that environment. I think about myself growing up, and I always knew I was some kind of Frankenfurter, vampire, queer <laughs> creature. And I was just always like, "Fuck these people!" Like it's just a matter of time. I'm biding my time, and the minute I can get out of here, I will. And I did. But I do think that if everyone who is different or queer or whatever moves to New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. You know, this is why the middle of the country is red. And when we have problems, when it's time for a presidential election, you're like, there's no way that many people would vote for someone like Mm -hmm. Trump. And it's like, surprise, (laughs) you left them there to, you know, soak in their own hate. And, yeah. and if we're not there to remind them that there's people other than them, it's, it's a catch 22. You yeah. Know? Or challenge those beliefs. But then there's also a danger to that. But yeah, it's a, it's a complex issue. But I do hope that some of the advice that we've given will help uh, Justin in finding his place in that environment. But this idea of Donald Trump will never leave me. In oh, no. <laughs> uh. One last thing I will say, this is advice from my dad, who when I came out, my dad was really adorable. He was like, well, Ian, you know, he had to promise me one thing. I was like, what is it? He's like, well, you can't date any ugly men. Cause you know, no son of mine is going to date ugly guys. I was like, all right, thanks dad. But the real advice he gave me was you are going to encounter a lot of people who don't like you and who do not accept you. And it is not your job to make them like you. Those people, fuck them. Like find your chosen family, find your own people, your tribe and invest your time, energy and love into those people because that will make your experience a hundred percent better. Very wise. If you pick chosen family, make sure they don't have any real family either (laughs) because then they'll go hang out with them when it's time for the holidays. (laughs) Yeah, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) Love you, real family and chosen family. (laughs) Bethany writes, My best friend and I are in a disagreement. I think that in your lip sync number, Call Me, Swanthula is pretending to be on the phone to the voices in the mix. My friend thinks that Swan is contacting the voices telepathically. I think her raised hand signifies a phone, but my friend thinks it's her receiving a psychic message. Well, Bethany... I want to thank you for ruminating so long on my performance and I understand your obsession with it. Um, but I want to say that kind of both of you guys are right. The performance is about an idea. It's about the irony of Blondie's call me to the psychic messages that we might be receiving as like seers and dark ladies. So you both get a point for the win. I rewrite. My question is for the whole group. If you were hosting slash programming a horror movie night at your local theater, what double feature would you show? Oh, Damn. That's a tall order. Oh, my God. Oh, mom. I don't think I can handle this question. I'm going to say, just because of the energy that's around everything right now, I would go for something more fun and 80s horror. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe like a Friday the 13th would be good mixed with something like Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Nice. Okay. I thought you were going to go Friday the 13th and um, Sleepaway Camp which would be like thematic. And then you could have like a whole like summer campground slasher double feature. The thing about that is I wouldn't want to have to get up in front of the theater and explain all the shit that's wrong with sleepaway camp so that we don't get canceled for playing the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I didn't make the movie. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Ian? Um, I would go with an unreliable narrator double feature. Unreliable narrators are my favorite. And I would do, I don't know what order it would be, but it would be black Swan and American psycho. Uh, they're both movies wow. that I think are fabulous. And I also think they're fucking hysterical. Like when I watch Black Swan, I'm like, that's a comedy, mama. I love that movie. <laughs> I need a rewatch because I loved it the first time through. Oh. But it, yeah, but that like kind of like unreliable narrator kind of like 
inner world psycho psychic landscape mm-hmm. that is truly horrifying because oh. it, it's again it's like one of those anything goes type of situations which puts me off my center and definitely makes me very nervous mm. reminds me i kind of want to re-watch fatal attraction i keep <gasps> seeing little clips of it and i haven't seen it in so long we should all Wait, watch oh it oh my god do we want to say like creature future movie review for next episode fatal attraction is <sighs> on the lineup and writes I have always been absolutely terrified of horror movies my whole life, but listening to y'all talk about various horror movies and shows on the podcast has made me want to give it another shot. What movies do you recommend for a horror newbie to try that don't rely on jump scares? I would say start with what we're talking about, the 80s comedy horror, because, you know, Gremlins is technically a horror movie, but it's it's easy to digest, but there's some scary parts in it, right? Sure. Um, and even, you know, go to like the Adams Family movies. Those those two are very light, but they're yeah. kind of spooky. And then from there, we can graduate maybe to like Friday the 13th and start getting into some slashers and yeah. let us know how you do after that. But girl, that's <laughs> a big jump from Adams Family to Friday the 13th. Like you're going to get scared. Like that's, yeah. but you, you will find the joy in kind of being in that like uncomfortable space. And, you know, if you're like me, like I've said it a million times, I kind of get scared of everything, but I also like laugh. It's sort of like a weird cathartic like emotional release yeah Mm -hmm. i'd throw out beetlejuice in there because it's also horror but very fun death becomes her one of my absolute favorite movies a horror movie i would say kind of like a fantasy thriller but definitely horror aspects too Mm -hmm. oh me yeah you you are gifted an opinion go ahead shara thank you um i would say (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i won um, I would definitely say the two horror movies that stand out from my childhood. My mom was a really big horror fan when she was younger and then she got, you know, older and like stopped liking it. Whatever. Don't do that. The two would be Carrie and also The Sixth Sense. I know that Carrie has a jump scare at the end, but it is a classic, like supernatural. It's kind of bloody and it's just fun. I mean, there's actually the beginning is not fun, but watch Carrie. That's my vote. No, that is an awesome recommendation. Yes, too. it is. Ooh, it's yeah. very much in the spirit. I think of Dragula because it celebrates the uncelebrated, the mm-hmm. underdog, the put down and the forgotten who is underestimated and rises up and destroys everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Also, yes, that fucking synopsis. (laughs) (laughs) Connie says, I'm curious about your opinions on Rob Zombie's movies, especially his take on Halloween. Also, I'm rewatching the first three seasons of Dragula right now, and I have to know, what is the behind the scenes experience of The Last Supper's really like? So on the subject of Rob Zombie's horror films, I am not a fan. Um, I know... A lot of people are, and it's totally fine. I'm not judging you. It's just my opinion. I am not into any of his horror movies at all, especially the Halloween remake. (laughs) And especially, I've heard recently that he's going to be helming a remake of The Monsters, and I do not like it or support it. So to touch base on what it's really like behind the scenes experiencing the last supper in those filming days i think that each of us are going to have a very different perspective on this me personally at that stage in production you must imagine all of the hell that we've unleashed and all of the million hour days that we've endured so for me it's almost like a hands off the wheel joyride to hell i'm just there to narrate and make sure everyone's pointing their blasters in the right direction. I'm kind of relaxed about it. So my behind the scene experience, I think is relatively mellow. I I think there was a spike in season two. I found a little bit of joy in that too. Somehow I managed to turn it around and make that fun too. So my, my approach completely and my experience, very relaxed and fun. 
So for me, the last suppers are always super stressful because I'm very much engaged in all of the competitors, like emotional journeys and their emotional states. Right. So even though I'm not talking directly to them about these things. You all know I keep like a close eye on everybody from afar. And I'm like, okay, this one's sad and this one wants to leave or this one's feeling like this. And I'm kind of, even though I'm cold, you know, I have to be cold to them on the set because we don't want them to think we're like favoring people. You know, we have our eye on them. And, And so by the time we get to The Last Supper, I feel like I'm like psychically overloaded because I'm thinking about all of them and their experience on stage. And I'm also thinking, well, like, this is like your last chance of the season to make an impact or say something. Are you, are you going to say something or, or is this one making you not want to say things? Like I get very caught up in all that. So it's super stressful. I also don't know if someone's going to freak out or something like, you know, that first last supper set of precedents because a lot of feelings came out that none of us expected. Mm-hmm. I still think Melissa be fierce at the season one reunion is one of the most memorable moments of any last supper. There was felony too, who I think, you know, felony, felony just sort of got a bad hand in a way, not, not from anyone else dealing it to her. It's just the way the cookie crumbled because I do think felony is a really talented artist and it just didn't work out for her on the first episode. And I feel like she was there by the end of the season thinking, well, you know, why is someone over here who isn't very, conscionable or isn't putting a lot into their drag they're still on the show and here i i went out first and i think that was hard for her to struggle with so yeah i don't know hopefully we'll see more of her in the future because i think she's very talented no she is and her look was really major for the, mm-hmm. the last supper the, the last supper it. floor show yeah. yeah totally i think for me i'm gonna take the middle ground here i think that there are elements of it that i agree with swan i'm a little bit hands-off when it comes to once they're on the stage and they're just kind of all you know, talking about their experiences, that's the piece where I'm like, okay, I can kind of sit back. However, the lead up to that moment is like the worst hell you can imagine. It's the first time that they're all coming back to the set. They've been kind of, you know, marinating and wherever they've been for however long production has been going on for. It's tons of personalities back into the room. It's so many moving pieces and it is ultimately super stressful. All right, that's all the questions we have for this episode. And thank you to everyone who wrote in. If you have a question for us about the podcast, our TV show, or any of our projects, remember to write into us at creatures at bouletbrothersdragula.com. Now it's time to change the mood a little and bring the lights down as we prepare for this episode's haunting of history. For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life, documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown. Across various cultures around the world and throughout history, humans have sought to punish wrongdoers in a variety of ways in attempts to bring justice to a world increasingly filled with evil. In trying to cleanse the darkness by bathing it in light, however, some forms of punishment inadvertently deepen the hold of dark magic on our world. One such punishment that's existence predates the Hebrew Bible is known across the world by the simple phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. One of the most morbid, documented magical items in history, the Hand of Glory stems from this punishment and refers to a mummified, severed hand of a convicted murderer transmogrified into a ghoulish, five-wicked candle said to grant its user invisibility under the Shroud of Darkness, or to cast unwitting victims into a death-like slumber, unable to defend themselves from the praying darkness. 
Serving as a form of capital punishment for thieves dating back to the 18th century, public amputation of the hand used to steal goods was meant to serve multiple meanings when utilized. The pain of amputation and the shame of permanent disfigurement as punishment for the thief, and the resulting severed limb as a warning to potential criminals lurking in the shadows. Beginning in the 16th century, however, a different light was cast over this sort of dismemberment, and practitioners of black magic sought to gain power rather than justice from the severed limbs of those who broke the law. Although there are several documented variations on the creation of a Hand of Glory, with physical recipes printed in popular texts regarding witchcraft and the occult throughout the 1700s, the most macabre ritual involves draining the blood from the severed limb and extending the fingertips to create an outstretched hand during rigor mortis. Then, after sewing the murderer's hair through the base of the palm to the tips of the fingers to create five individual wicks, the hand would be dipped in the tallow fat harvested from the corpse. One such recipe is contained within Le Petit Albert, a grimoire of natural and cabalistic magic written in 1722 that became so popular the Catholic Church officially denounced the text and the rituals inside as proof of black magic, leading to a ban of the book in the late 1700s. While the ritual creation of a hand of glory is enough to make your skin crawl, the supposed supernatural properties of the totem begin to shed light on why the grotesque candle was so highly sought after by criminals and occultists alike. According to popular folklore, when all five of the fingertips of a hand of glory are lit at the same time, the holder of the candle is cast in a sickly glow, illuminated only by the flames of the hand of glory, while the world around them is bathed in a supernatural darkness. This darkness allows the owner of the candle to move about unseen, with some believing that the hand of glory truly grants invisibility. Other accounts have indicated that while the hand of glory remains lit, any sleeping persons would be unable to wake up allowing the holder to commit their crimes without witness. In addition to these powers, it has also been said that while the candles remained lit, all locks were rendered useless, making the Hand of Glory the ultimate tool in the thieves' arsenal. Each of these powers came with a caveat, however. If the thumb of the Hand of Glory refused to remain ablaze, it meant that someone was watching the beholder, or that someone was awake in the targeted house, rendering the abilities useless and also serving as a warning to abandon the criminal's current plan. The belief in the powers of a Hand of Glory led to their popularity among thieves, collectors of occult items, and practitioners of dark magic during the witch trials of the 16th and 17th centuries. Several trials during the time included confessions of the accused witches to the creation or use of a Hand of Glory, including the trial of two German women in 1588 who admitted to exhuming corpses to harvest the hands of freshly buried criminals, and another witch trial in Scotland two years later, where a man confessed to using a hand of glory to break into a church and perform sacrifices to the devil. Perhaps due to the documented historical evidence of the hand of glory, the macabre item has made countless appearances in pop culture, with its existence cemented in the general lore of the occult. Notably, a Hand of Glory is featured in the Harry Potter series of novels, with antagonist Draco Malfoy coming across one as a second year, and later using it in the penultimate novel of the series. With numerous fictional accounts, any flickering doubt regarding the Hand of Glory's existence can be snuffed out by visiting the Whitby Museum in North Yorkshire, England, where a real Hand of Glory remains on display since it was brought to the museum in 1935. Derived from the French, Man de Gloire, itself a corruption of Mandragor, or the French word for mandrake, the paranormal legend of the Hand of Glory can be traced back to the supernatural and scientific power of its namesake, the mandragora root. One of the most important plants related to herbal medicine and the occult, 
the mandrake can produce hallucinogenic and narcotic effects, and, in sufficient quantities, even induce unconsciousness or paralysis. The leaves of the mandrake were thought to resemble hands, and the belief that potent mandrakes would emit light when placed in total darkness lends further connection to the gruesome hand of glory. Following the witch trials of the late 1600s, the belief in the supernatural abilities of the Hand of Glory began to wane as the world entered the Age of Reason. While the superstitions of the past have faded to darkness, the belief in the mythical properties of the Hand of Glory and the light cast by its grim candles gripped certain communities and people as reality. At a time in which human remains were widely believed to hold magical power, and the belief that one could influence the physical world through sympathetic magic, there may have been no better tool to remain enshrouded in darkness, or bring your foes to an incapacitated, death-like stupor, than by the light of a hand of glory. Thank you all for joining us for another hair-raising episode of the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. Be sure to keep up with us at BoulayBrothersDragula.com and remember to send your listener questions to Creatures at BoulayBrothersDragula.com. Until next time, uglies. Goodbye, everyone. The Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night is a Dread Central production. Hosted by the Boulay Brothers with their co-host and producer, Ian DeVogler. Engineered and mixed by Carlos Bueno with music by Neuron Spectre. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.